A wonderful good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Salamu alaikum. Yeah, so we would like to say back in the Middle East. Um, Tim, we haven't been to that part of the world till till today, have we? Um, no, we haven't. I was. Um, I um, yeah, I was positively surprised when you said it's going to be a Middle Eastern episode. I, although the, the guest is an Englishman. Um, he, he's Richard, the the Lawrence of Arabia in the IT industry. Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> also called Richard Knight. So, um, yeah, the, the Knight of No. Let's let's just that's it's unfair doing this while he's not here. But it was a very um, insightful episode to me. Um, I just love you know these uh, episodes where I can just like almost lean back, listen, and from time to time throw in a question, but. Um, yeah, it was very insightful. And um, again, the, the amount of topics we covered. Uh... <laughs> I mean, you guys are going to enjoy it. We're starting with, uh, we're going into cloud, edge, data center, cooling, IoT, mm -hmm. um, cyber warfare, critical uh, infrastructures. So okay. mechanism how to make money on fake vaccines <laughs> no bullshit. Well, that's a bad one but um, anyways no worries um we hope you guys enjoy the episode thank you Hi there, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Uh, we're back for another lovely episode of our podcast. And, and this guest is really close to my heart because um, we we met in the most masculine way you can meet, which is in Lycra um, and a bunch of shirts and shorts and <laughs> some some clip-on paddles. Um, no, we didn't went to some sort of a club, which you guys are thinking now we actually met cycling. So um, Richard, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Uptime Punks. <laughs> Thank you. Nice uh, to be here. Yeah. So um, the the thing is, me and, I, I think me and Rich didn't even know we're somehow sort of in the same industry until we we had a really rainy, wet ride back after five hours freezing coming back from Windsor, and we could not feel most of our body parts. I was like, "Oh, do you listen to podcasts?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, I always listen to podcasts when I go running." And I was like, "Oh, you know, I do this tech podcast." Oh, he's like, "Oh, interesting. I work in tech." And then somehow, um, yeah, and uh, since then, uh, Richard started listening to the Uptime Punk, so he's uh, also a fellow Uptime Punk, and uh, he always slides me some little DMs here and there and says, oh, I know this people from 10 years ago, or I met this people in Malaysia, or just now he was telling us some uh, anecdotes where he, <laughs> he remembers himself in Vietnam, people used to come with uniforms on Friday into the office. But anyways, I, I think we're going to get into these things in a little bit. Um Rich, so every time um, we have a guest here, we always have a little little questions we have lined up for them, and yeah. you have to go through the same questionnaires. Otherwise, you're not warm enough for Tim's um, brutal questions. Um, you almost <laughs> Tim. This time you have to behave, yeah, because last time I had to call the uh, pull the plug on the interview with the last guest. So, um, <laughs> Rich, do you do you remember your first uh, mobile phone? I do, a Motorola StarTech which was the ultimate in cool in 1996. Clamshell opened up, pulled the aerial up. You could imagine you were on Star Trek. Absolutely wonderful phone. And, and what was the first phone call you made with it? Do you remember? 
Well, Mom, I got a mobile phone. You know, the funny thing was, I didn't know anyone who had a mobile phone at that point. So it was, um, I was, I was just starting to work away from home a lot at that point. So I thought I'd get a mobile phone and then realized I didn't know anyone with a mobile phone. So maybe I didn't speak to anyone for three months on it. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but you carried it around. You, you, you were it. Ah, yeah, I mean, it was, it was cool. I mean, it was analog then as well. So it did, it did absolutely nothing apart from phone calls, not even a snake game. It was it. You could just <laughs> bring people. Um, okay. Uh, but was this then your first interaction with um, technology? But first, let's get to what was your first computer? When was your first contact with computers itself? Well, um, my training was, um, I'm an electronic, my, I'm an engineer by trade. So I studied electronics and microcomputing. So my first interaction was actually programming 8080 processors in assembly language, which was um, kind of as basic as you can get. Um, the first computer I used at work was, um, was either a Mac or an HP, two very different OSs, I know. And then my favorite from that time, I had a SunSpark workstation in about 1989 at work, which was um, immensely powerful at that time. And um, I was like the luckiest boy at work because I had this thing that could do all these computations in it. And it had, you know, it had a, had a graphical mouse and things like that, which were considered, you know, super amazing. First PC I had at home was a Sony laptop. And I was quite happy with um, PCs until Vista came along. And Vista cured me once and for all of, you know, I, I went to the, the Mac side then and I never left. So Vista just killed me for for, um, for PCs. So you're an Apple guy, yeah? Would you Nowadays, say you're an Apple yeah. guy? Nowadays, yes, because I'm more interested in what you can do with the tech than the tech itself. You know, that... that um, okay. Yeah. So you think? So you think? Uh, here comes an interesting question already. So, what do you think is more important, software or hardware? I think. I think good soft, probably the software. Probably the software. Yes, I think software. Okay. Um, okay. So, is, is that then what got you into industry? That um, you wanted to be the coolest guy in the office, or um, what made you study? Um, well. Engineer. Well, so I was basically I was working. We were making. I was working for a company that made military communications, military devices, and and pretty much everything in those days was was on paper. You know, stock cards, everything. And and as computers started coming in for you know managing business processes, most people didn't want to get involved in that. You know, you're talking 1985, 86. Um, you know, computers were seen as odd and weird. And so kind of it was the thing if nobody else wanted to do, you put your hand up and did it. And um, it really came from that. So I, you know, I, I did some computing at work and then got involved in large scale software deployments. You know, I was working for British Aerospace and Siemens around that time. And they were implementing large um, software products like SAP. And I got involved in that and then moved into doing that full time. 
Yeah, and then somehow you ended up somewhere in the middle of the desert, but we get to that in a bit. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting story. We'll get to that, yeah. <laughs> so working in the industry, and we always ask our guests because the, the podcast is called Uptime Punks. So how would you define uptime? Uh, what, what do you think is uptime for you? What does uptime mean to you, personal and business? Well, I think everyone knows the, you know, everyone understands the traditional measure is something around availability um, of infrastructure. But I think it's a lot more than that. I think it's availability and usability of the application you're running. You know, without getting too much detail, five nines availability on infrastructure is easy. You can almost do that in your bedroom and it's irrelevant. So, you know, just because you've got, high availability of infrastructure is useless if the app is running completely slowly or, or falling over. So I think availability on the application or the system is more important. And I think it's uh, it's actually a subject that a lot of people have dodged over the years. You know, people have sold, you know, managed services around applications with pretty poor you know, availability metrics as well. And actually, when we come on to what I was doing in the cloud, one of the things we were doing then was providing, you know, high levels of availability, in a sense, uptime on applications, as opposed to just offering it on the infrastructure. So I think it's that. It's, it's whether the application is there and available, as opposed to whether I've got two of everything in a tier four data center or two tier four data centers. Or five tier four data centers. Yeah. And yeah. Data centers are like mushrooms, isn't it? Like they just keep on popping up all over the world. It, you know, it uh, amazes me the, the cash that's out there to build these huge, um, you know, when I was in Saudi Arabia, we, you know, the company I was working with, I think they put down three or four tier four data centers in, in, the, in, in a couple of years. Huge investment, huge investment. Um, so yeah, it's, it's more about the app anyway. But anyway. but coming to that, what has brought you to the Arabian Peninsula? Um, so so did somebody call you from there and was like, "No, hey, Rich, great opportunity here. Um, you want to come here for a couple of years, live at fifty degrees temperatures, um, work really hard." Um, well, we both have uh, here's quite similar past history. So, well, tell us your story. So, um, after a long time, you know, doing large scale ERP projects around the world, it got to about 2010, and I was fed up of that, and I wanted to do something different. So, I joined a very small venture back startup, a US venture back startup which is kind of weird for an English guy in London. And it was a cloud company. And so I probably didn't really know what cloud was. Um, anyway, I joined this startup and we, we, we started off. And long story short, we managed to sell our cloud solution to Mobiley. So Mobiley is the second telco in Saudi Arabia, huge company. And my boss at the time, the CEO, I remember this call. He said, um, we need someone to go and run the project. To And essentially what we're going to do is deploy our version of the cloud into the Mobiley 
data centers in Saudi Arabia and then essentially build out a cloud business in Saudi Arabia. He said, we need you to go for four months to kick the project off and get it going. Uh, and then that's it. And so, you know, Saudi Arabia, you know, looked it up, gulped, knew where it was, but you, you hear all sorts of things. And so, habibi, habibi. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, so I went, you know, it's a, it's a venture-backed company. We're all in it to win it, as it were. So I left um, very start of 2012 for Saudi Arabia for this four-month project. And I never really came back from the Middle East until March the 23rd this year when the pandemic just wiped out the whole, you know, the whole world. Um, so, yeah, four months turned into, you know, eight years. Um, and, and that's how I ended up there. I mean, we, um, the company, and it kind of worked well. We built the cloud in Mobile. We set up a cloud business with real customers in Saudi Arabia. Um, could talk for a long time about, you know, different customers and the, I would say there's cultural differences and, and, and they're not bad. I think difference is good. You know, difference is, is good, but learning, you know, learning those cultural differences, learning not to, learning to be careful with the language because if you can't pronounce things well, they can mean very different things. And some of those are, are not helpful. Um, I remember I was exiting Riyadh and I tried to say something to the, the guy who stamped the passport. And I, I wanted to say my Arabic isn't good. But what I ended up saying was, some, either Arabic is no good or Arabs are no good. And he looked at me and he asked me again. And I, I, I could hear the spade as I was digging myself this hole. I could, you know, they say, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Uh, <laughs> and he stamped the passport and threw it at me, you know, across the desk. And I, I left with my heart pounding in my chest. But um, so that's how I ended up in the Middle East. Um, and um, and then what, we, what I was doing for a, for a few years after that was essentially taking this cloud business model that we had established and and rolling that out to different um, organisations across the Middle East, Africa, and Southeast Asia. So I was based in Riyadh, stroke Bahrain mainly, but. We sold into um, South Africa, which was uh, fantastic, Japan, South Korea, Dubai, um, Turkey, um, trying to think of a few more. But that was mainly it. So, yeah, so I basically lived Englishman abroad in, in the Middle East for the last eight years. Um, how, how would you compare the markets? Because this is this is quite interesting now. The cloud markets. How would you compare it in terms of infrastructures? Because here comes the interesting part, Rich. So we always have guests on here to say, "Oh, the Americans say, oh, look at Europe. Europe is so advanced, right?" Then the Europeans say, "Look at Asia. Asia is so advanced." Between Europe and Asia, you sort of have the Middle East, which you guys made in sort of your like, let's say, your hub, right? You were operating out of the Middle East. Mm. Um, Middle East is a very fast developing uh, area, I would say. Um, 
especially Saudi Arabia. Arabia is um, well. Don't you can quote me on this because I'm not going back anytime soon. Um, Saudi Arabia is sort of taking over the lead role in the Middle East in terms of development. I mean, across the board, if it's entertainment, infrastructures, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, they were maybe lacking a bit behind in the past uh, century, but now I think they've um, with the new um, with the new crown prince, they've sort of like accelerated the prog process. Progress, progress. Yeah, that's the right way. But for you as an expert, so you have operated in all these markets. Who would you say, like, like you said, Japan? I would have expected that Japan would be way ahead of everybody, right? Because they had Tamagotchis while we were still in the Stone Age, or um, like, how 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 would you look at the market itself? How how would you how would you? Well, <laughs> Japan is the only place I've been where the the, the company I was working with. Um, has a data center that is basically built on an enormous spring so that when there's an earthquake, the data center remains stable. It's the only way I can describe it. It's a data center built on a, a big spring. I mean, it's a lot more complex than that. So, you know, the Japanese find solutions to some of nature's, you know, fiercest challenges. I think in the Middle East, um, I guess it's no secret that Saudi Arabia was coming from a lowish base in terms of technology and capability. A, a lot of a lot of its intellect was imported, expats and those kind of things. Um, but that's certainly changing now. There's a rapid change in people's desire to, to get on and get jobs and work. And I think that's got a knock-on in, in, in IT and, and innovation. If you look at startups, you know, whereas you wouldn't really have a startup culture in the Middle East previously, it's actually starting to get quite interesting in, in UAE and, and Saudi Arabia. One of the things they've got to figure out is Unfortunately, a lot of startups fail and it's still not really a mechanism. It goes a bit deeper in here, but there's not really a mechanism to go bankrupt in the Middle East, uh, which is quite a good way of firms. It cleanses the market here. You, you know, if you think about America, you can, America, try, try, fail, try, fail, start again. It's a lot more difficult to do that with the cultural relationship to debt in the Middle East than it is in the West. Should we get into it, Rich? Or maybe not better? No. Okay. <laughs> better not. Okay, let's just... Yeah. But yeah, I, have what a, I have one question, just like on the cultural thing. Yeah. The business language, is it, is, it, is it... Because you said in the beginning you spoke um, um, a, a phrase and you were perhaps misunderstood, but you actually wanted to learn that language, but did you speak it on a daily basis? In, while doing I wanted to learn... I wanted to learn because I'm sort of person who I get really interested in the cultures I'm working with. You know, I used to get fascinated watching the guys do their prayers and things like that, which would be something that was done in the office. You know, people would just gather and do their prayers. But business language, all English. Okay. Um, um, yeah, I mean, everybody speaks it. It would be very rare, even in some weird places in, you know, somewhere like Jizan which is down in the south near Yemen, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a bit less English there, but everywhere else, English is extremely well spoken. Uh, okay. Jazan is a nice place for diving, so um, that's that's one. I think thing. it's recommended but, to go down there now because it's a bit close to Yemen. But uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah. I've I've met some really lovely people there. There's one f- uh, fascinating fact about Jazan, which I still remember. There's a, a Jewish community. It's the only Jewish community in Saudi Arabia that has stayed in the last three hundred years. Um, so this is something uh, that a lot of people don't know that there's um, a Jewish community in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, quite yeah. an interesting fact. Yeah, live and, in and it can get quite green down there as well. You can get rains, and it gets green, and, and it gets snowy even. Um, but Tim, to answer your question, because I've left out there as well, so I can get a little bit of my <laughs> sauce on it. Um, so for, for for us, it was like, yeah, English is. But the thing is, as a Westerner, in order to get that mojo going with the locals, you sort of start picking up the phrases here and there. And with picking up the phrases, sometimes, like Rich said, you don't really know what it means. This can really backfire. And I mean, I give you a good example. Like in Arabic, you don't have a P, you, so there's a B. So that's why it's like always Pepsi. So they don't say Pepsi, they say Pepsi, uh, right? Yeah. And then you, you don't you don't say Paul, you say Baul, right? Yeah. But then you don't have a you don't have the B you don't have the B A either. So actually, it becomes bull when you write in Arabic. So my name is written as bull, right? And bull <laughs> means urine, unfortunately, which means that in my visa application there will be written uh, bull amar, which means like the urine of the hammer. And this is basically already like when they would stamp your visa, it would be like ah oh, ha, 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 look here ah oh, ha, ha, you know. So this this is just to give you a little bit of. Um, cultural um and, and this is where it comes from also that one of the things is like um what from back there is when you come then living here like in the uk it's like like when i get on the phone when i say my last episode like, yeah, paul hammer hammer like the tool because then it would make people understand it yeah. and this is something i picked up from there rich is nothing he's like yeah yeah um yeah yeah <laughs> it's, um yeah, it's an interesting subject, uh, and there's so many different dialects of the Arabic language. It's one of these things that spans, you know, all the way from, you know, Iraq right out to Morocco. But there's so many different variants, and 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 those who speak it can really detect where you're from. You know, whether you're speaking, um, you know, you're Palestinian, Jordanian, Egyptian, or you know, Moroccan or whatever. It's all it's all part of the game. But it's, it's great fun. And there's nothing better than, you know, driving out to the desert on a Friday. Friday's the day off there. And, you know, just going out to the nothingness that's there, lighting a barbecue, you know, grilling some meat, just listening to some music. Some guys used to sing songs. I mean, they, they are an incredibly hospitable people. You know, the locals are, I would say, much more hospitable than English people. You know, you know, they'll do anything for you. Um, I, I I didn't experience hospitality in England, to be honest with you. <laughs> oh, no, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm comparing it to a low base, but I found yeah. the Arab sense of welcome and um, you know really fantastic, really very nice. Yeah. Cool. Shall we They're talk really... about cloud or? Um... <laughs> yeah. We didn't start with the food yet. I mean, we need to talk about the magruba, the 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 mendi. I made some mendi on on Saturday, by the way, Rich. Uh, oh. I don't know if you ever tried to make mendi yourself at all. I did actually a few weeks ago, and it was 
you know, it was okay, but I think you need a bit more experience than I have in doing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was quite funny because I was I was I was telling um, my lovely partner I was telling I was like okay I, I think I need to get a spade go downstairs dig a hole and start lowering it into the ground to cook the chicken and the lamb properly <laughs> but I think the neighbors wouldn't appreciate it Absolutely. so I ended up doing it in the open. but yeah let's speak about cloud um so the cloud market in in Saudi Arabia is it like when you when you went first out there, was was it? How far was it developed back then? Because I, I feel like you were Zero. one of the sort of Zero. pioneers that went. Zero. We were the first people. There was nothing, um, and it was interesting because, you know, the first wave of cloud was all of this um, this thing about convert capex to opex, and that's what cloud's all about. Which, by the way, isn't really, but. Um, um, and yeah, really, we were having to make the markets. And what I mean by that, it was going to customers and, and really explain to people, you know, maybe people have heard about it and maybe thought the cloud was for hosting your website or something like this. But what we were trying to do was um, get and acquire real customers with real enterprise workloads onto that cloud and, and we did that you know we had customers such as um well i won't name them but you know quasi government entities big large organizations who moved their work their their workloads into into our cloud i think there's still there's still data sovereignty concerns around cloud especially when many of the hyperscalers are essentially US owned and controlled. There's still worries about that around, you know, government workloads and things like that. Uh, and there's been on and off initiatives with um, Ministry of Interior to build their own national cloud in, in Saudi Arabia. And, and similarly within, um, within, within the UAE. So I think but yeah, firstly, going there it was all about really helping people understand what cloud was about. And there was a lot of cultural things there because, you know, people people's status in organization was how many people worked for them in IT. And of course, if you're if you're taking, you know, data center workloads away, then you're probably going to be removing staff. And so people feel that they're, they're no longer you know, their status as a manager is, is less, less so. I think what really changed, started to change, it was when Saudiization started to come in, a lot of expats, expats being, a lot of, majority of IT workers in Saudi Arabia were not Saudis, it's just a fact. And as the squeeze has come on to, um, promote locals, you know, um, Saudi nationals into the workforce as opposed to just issuing visas for foreign nationals. I think that that has also moved workloads or driven workloads out to the cloud. And then the second thing is, you know, when I went there, people were running workloads in some pretty awful data centers. You meant, I think we were speaking about data centers earlier. People were you know, they had a room in the offices where they would be running. I mean, I went to a company, a pharmaceutical company in a city north of Riyadh, about four hours drive. 
and I was proudly shown, they proudly showed me around their data center. Most of the servers were those white compact ones that for, I don't know if you remember, compact were making white servers probably 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and they were running their business on. And, you know, so there were lots of sweated assets and pretty bad data centers. Hmm. The, the two main telcos have done a lot to address that. STC and Mobile have put down a lot of data center space and good quality data center space, mm. um, which has given companies the option to, you know, take advantage of much better, much better facilities. The other thing that actually the Middle East is good at is the connectivity is good. It's not cheap, but connectivity is good. I did look at, you know, some cloud projects in Indonesia. And Indonesia's got some great data centers, but once you get out of um, Jakarta, connectivity is terrible. And so if you're running, you know, enterprise workloads where you're punting lots of data around, you know, connectivity can be a pinch point. So the combination of having good data connectivity and good data centers is, it became more and more compelling in mm. the Middle East. What, what about the powering and the cooling? Just... Um... I know we, 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 we don't go into like the operational in infrastructure thing. We should remain in the cloud. But do you know, I mean, it's a hot place, isn't it? And there's lots of solar power. So immediately, I think of powering and cooling um, data yeah. centers. Well, um, there's, there's almost no solar power actually deployed around these facilities. Mm -hmm. in Saudi. Uh, pretty typically with a lot of countries, there's only one electricity provider. So they have to get a dispensation from Uptime Institute because you're supposed to have two suppliers, two power supplies by two different um, providers. But they, they, they get dispensation to do that. But yeah, I mean, it's 50 degrees in Riyadh in the summer regularly. Um, if you've never been in 50 degrees, It's, a, it's an experience. Um, you, you, basically, there is no alcohol in Saudi Arabia, but you can still wake up every day feeling that you've got a hangover because you've just dehydrated <laughs> dryness. You know, so, uh, Riyadh's a, yeah. like about 1,000 meters um, from sea level. So yeah. higher, dry, hot, zero humidity. But yeah, so for power and cooling, uh, very much traditional, traditional systems. Um, just working very hard for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, not not very sustainable though. But uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I think I think look, I think they um, there's a big project. Part of the 2030 initiative is yeah. to move on to solar power. The thing with um, these. Um, thing with sustainable power is you've got to figure out ways to store it. I mean, it's storing that power that, that's key. So, you know, storing solar power, you need big batteries, big batteries, you know, that technology is, I mean, some of these data centers are consuming a lot of power. Mm. And as you know, the efficiencies are, I don't know, we don't want to get into all about PUE measures and things like that, but, um, The efficiencies of these data centers have to be pretty good to get a reasonable return on that power going in. Um, who, who, who are like the biggest provider out there 
Or is it the our typical Schneider Electrics inverters uh, ghosting around? All the providing all the, all, the, all the kit is the usual suspects. So all the all the mechanical and electrical is the the usual suspects. The main data centers providers in Saudi are STC, Mobile, probably ITC. Princess Noor has got a tier four in Riyadh. There are others, but those those, those are the biggies. In Dubai, again, Etisalat, Do. Um, there's a few others as well. But the telcos of La, and you can see that these things are big investments. You know, the telcos needed data centers anyway, so you can see why telcos are a natural a natural home for this. Um, I do believe there are other parties have looked at data center presence in, in Saudi. But again, you know, it's a big investment. Yeah, it's a big investment. Um, um, a little bit on the side, tracking back to one of the things you said, you said connectivity. So how come the connectivity is so good out in the Middle East? Is it because of the cables? The yeah, I mean, cables? a lot of the undersea cables, um, they join the Arabian Peninsula around the eastern province that we talked about before, and they all travel onwards through Jeddah, so out from that side. So you've got a lot of, if you look at the international trunking, a lot of the international stuff goes through that peninsula. And then again, you have to remember that Mobile is a telco. So the second telco was only established in 2005. So all of the infrastructure's new, um, you know, connectivity, new. You weren't talking, you're less so talking about like a British telecom who's got, you know, I don't know, 80 years of, of legacy business type thing. Um, so um, they were able to invest in new kit, new connectivity and those kind of things rather than a lot of legacy stuff holding them back, which I think is... Um, the other thing is that the vast majority of the region lives in some fairly defined places. I mean, you know Saudi yourself. You've got Eastern Province, which is you know, really Jubail, Damam, Dahran, those places. You've got Riyadh, uh, and then you've got Jeddah. You've got, um, you know, places. There's other cities, but it's, you know, there's a lot of Saudi Arabia's empty. Um, a lot of desert. Yeah. A lot of desert. Exactly. So, and again, if you look at United Arab Emirates, it's a very small country. It's quite easy to get connectivity and cabling uh, around that. I mean, Dubai is probably was it 60 miles top uh, um, top to bottom maybe so you know it's it's a bit easier to do um, but I do think when you were you know our key gig was moving enterprise workloads if you're moving you know big workloads that matter processing thousands of transactions you can't have lots of latency these are you know modern you know most systems that companies are running are not infrastructure aware they're not built within they're not built at the application for you know redundancy so you think about and i'm really talking about those systems that run databases you know oracle 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 database sap those things you know they're all memory heavy latency sensitive applications and those and those were the type of workloads that big companies were moving and are still moving to the cloud. And, and that's where I got back to that thing about, you know, uptime being a, 
being really at the app level rather than just at the infrastructure level. It's easy. You know, five nines availability is easy. Throw money at it. It's not hard to get the app engineered. I mean, for ex I mean, for example, I mean, I sound like an old man. Ten years ago, you would literally be having to figure out how you would arrange your disk arrays because they were spinning disks. And the speed of the spinning disks would give you the number of IOPS you could throw. So input-output transactions would give you the number of IOPS that you could allocate to a database or a function. And therefore, you know, all that calculation was having to go on to make up for the limitations of spinning, you know, spinning metal. Mm -hmm. ten, years, ten years later, no one talks about that. That was, that was a massive design feature of building an enterprise cloud in 2010. And literally, the amount of disk you could use, just so essentially you were keeping the, the readers at the edge of the disk. So there weren't, you know, another subject and one that I've probably forgotten a lot about because it was quite painful at the time. But those were the things around staging applications in the cloud that were pretty important back in the day that are less so now. So the involvement of tech, did you, did you, did you? I mean, you, you've obviously experienced lots of these, but I, I have kind of um, got just kind of the impression right now um, that you, that's kind of hard to keep up, isn't it? Because you do a thing, uh, you, you base a whole business idea, business model on, on something. Next thing you know, overnight, got obsolete and um, got to figure it out again. So obviously that's, that's the that's also the promise of tech but then again how do you think um uh how do you think you you've handled that in the past because well, now the next big thing might be edge computing or maybe it's 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 the hyperscaler so yeah is it a big thing in the middle east uh, is that something they're looking into because um we came across the so-called panel of tech yeah. um just basically it moves from big data centers back to edge and then it's moving the opposite direction again. Yeah, it's a bit like that client-server centralized instance thing back yeah. in the day. Um, well, so when we, when I started at VirtuStream in 2011, you know, the cloud company, if you looked at the cloud market space, you know, the marketplace at that time, <coughs> you had AWS, was very much a, a uh, what is it called? It wasn't really built for the enterprise. It was stuff that people, you know, it was it was up and coming. But there were a bunch of companies like Joyent, GoGrid, uh, Google wasn't really doing cloud then. I'm not even sure Azure was really doing cloud back then. Hmm. And all of those companies have gone, including Virtustream, the company I work for, but but mainly because it got sold to. EMC as a unicorn for 1.2 billion. But most of those companies just died. They, they withered on the vine. And I think what that tells you is that a profitable cloud infrastructure that can be commercially, commercially successful has to run at scale. You can't do, it's difficult to do cloud at low scale at at a at a market price that's that's reasonable, mm -hmm. um, which is 
I guess, where the name hyperscaler comes from because they're, they're big. Um, now, that doesn't mean that, that you won't have these national champions or government clouds or things like that, but I think the, a lot of workloads will end up at the hyperscalers just because their ability to innovate and their ability to deploy infrastructure at scale at a price that makes sense. Now, you asked mm. about edge computing. So, yet yeah, there's, you know, and, and that's a function of IoT and the lots of data. And too much, there's too much data. Well, most data is unable to be processed because you can't pump it up a pipe fast enough to a central instance to make sense of it in real time. So if you think about traffic control systems, road systems, um, smart vehicles, autonomous vehicles, and things like that, you want to be reacting in real time, and it takes too long to pump that data up to you know, a mm. central cloud, process it, and send some decision back. So that's the problem. Uh, hence that promise of, of 5G and all that, which is another variable in the equation, isn't it? But would even 5G be fast enough? Because, um, I, I, Rich, I, I, I know you do some stuff with autonomous cars as well. I think 5G well. moves it quickly. Um, but 5G is very much line of sight. And I'm not an expert in 5G, but essentially it uses all of the 4G control framework. So the, you've kind of got the data layer. Uh, I'm not explaining this well, but as far as I understand it, the, the control of 5G is still the 4G infra, and basically the, the the increasing bandwidth, as it were, is that. But you've still got then you know, a lot of data coming into central instances and trying to be processed and sent back. So I think it's it's a problem for now. And then you've got other use cases like mining and places like that where you know, 5G is not going to, 5G is a shorter distance to the tower than 4G, just the nature of, so you've got mining and um, oil and, you know, large, large critical national infrastructure where maybe that's not going to be the answer. So that's where you get your edge computing coming. The thing that I think will retard edge computing right now is security. So you've got a lot of devices collecting a lot of data and either processing them on the edge or sending them back. And I think, you know, right now I, I work with some companies looking at how to trust IoT devices. So I'm not talking about um, encryption and stuff like that. I'm saying, how can you trust? How do you know the device that's sending you information is the device it says it is? Because that's the that's a key attack vector in you know, making edge computing something we can rely on. Blockchain? Uh, blockchain, yeah. The, the problem we got with blockchain now is the, and again, I'm not an expert on blockchain, but the the speed to authenticate and the, the size those chains get to, and there's been some work done on that, and that's improved, but, you know, the chain, the chain increases in size as every little kind of authentication yeah. bit gets appended to it. So you've got you've got some problems there. But I think um so it's too slow. Are you saying are you saying it's too slow still or <laughs> well I genuinely don't know. I mean there's a lot of we I, you have to separate all the stories you hear about Bitcoin 
from blockchain as a technology. They, they, yeah. For me, it's unhelpful to say that, you know, a lot of people have the, it's the same thing in their mind. And for me, that's an unhelpful thing. Yes, um, but it's, it's the cryptography and, and the, 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 the need of other peers in the network to, to authenticate yeah. the transaction or validate something, which is, I think, inherently quite slow. Yeah, I, I don't that's think... But, I don't yeah. think it's fast enough yet for those edge use cases. Okay. It'll probably okay. get there. Um, and the other thing is you've got this other thing where you've got, you know, open blockchains where they're authentic or they're validated by, you know, you've got an internal blockchain, which is something mm -hmm. I think IBM are pushing where you kind of, it's all done inside your own organization. And then you've got, these externally validated blockchains more associated with the cryptocurrencies where, you know, you can have 15 laptops in your bedroom, um, you know, mining, mining things. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I think edge, edge is going to be important for smart cities. It's going to be important for, it is important for that. But I think we haven't yet seen a big hack of that kind of infrastructure but if we're not careful we will for sure and hmm. i saw some stat that you could probably bring the whole of new york to a halt of manhattan to a halt just with six rogue vehicles so you got you you move yourself forward for where you're running autonomous vehicles autonomous passenger shuttles which you know technology technology wise are very is very possible now Mm. You take six of those and stop the whole of Manhattan. Hmm. Kind of interesting. So we're engaging a very dangerous conversation now. Um, <laughs> how would you exactly... Um, Come across the statistic, <laughs> Richard. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, it probably popped up on... Yeah, I, I, I read it somewhere. It might have been one of these things, maybe it was seven vehicles, but something like that. Yeah. I, but I do think... But, and also, also the physical side of it. I mean, a camera and, and, and all that, you can't possibly protect all devices physically as well. I mean, you know. I mean, Tim, before anything, I think Richard should solve the problem of why our Swift always lacks. So Swift is the Turbo Trainer software which we use for our indoor cycling. It's my favorite it gadget for lockdown. That's my gadget of the lockdown. Is that your favorite? <laughs> it's your favorite gadget for lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, how many hours you spend a week with your gadget <laughs> too many too many but, uh, too many but, yeah uh, but imagine imagine your 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 swift um trainer if it were outside in the park and you you went there i mean hacking it um like in the classical sense of going um of accessing um it via internet and and, and manipulating it or you know, stealing some data, training data from Richard or whatever it is. And then it's also the physical aspect. You go there with a the hammer and you just, you just, you just explode it, right? Or you just, and I think that's another um, issue that, that isn't perhaps solved with this whole edge thing. Because the more decentralized little devices um, you have, um, or little data centers you have, the more, uh, vulnerable, I would say vulnerable. vulnerable you get, and the more um, dispersed your assets get. And the same thing with yep. IoT cameras, um, compute uh, um, uh, vehicles, um, 
Vessels. We have that in a couple of weeks on the podcast. Vessels. Vessels. Cyber tech vessels. Yeah, vessels um, all this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, the classical image of a hacker being behind this computer and uh, accessing things uh, remotely and, 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 and doing bad stuff. Um, you know, just imagine me with a hammer. <laughs> It's, yeah. it's it's as dangerous, isn't it? So well, you imagine, I mean, you've got, I mean, nowadays you've got, you know, cameras on, you know, critical national infrastructure with AI. So you've got an IoT device, a camera using AI to look at, you know, massive, let me call them oil refineries and things like that, looking at and the camera can look and it can detect a, a variation in temperature above a certain valve and can say, you know, this matches a use case that says that valve's leaking. Okay, so that's an IoT device. Probably that camera is an unsecured IoT device. Yes, it's sitting on a um, a local network, i.e. It's not, it's not transmitting through 5G. But nevertheless, there's nothing that stops that camera being spoofed, you know, essentially its ID being spoofed and, you know, something else purporting to be in that device, sending back erroneous or destructive data. And that's probably how you would attack or shut down critical national infrastructure. That's probably what you would do, you know, in the future. I mean, cameras are everywhere. A lot of them are digital. They're easy to hack into. So I do think... Uh, and it's like a lot of things around new technology. The the tech leads and the security concerns come afterwards. I mean, you know, data privacy and all of these things that we worry about now. We uh, it was kind of pretty much the wild west ten years ago, wasn't it? You know, nobody. It's like, oh shit, happened. Oh, how did that one happen? Oh, let's look back at how it happened. And this is basically how. Exactly. It... So I I think that edge is a use case that's valuable. But I think it will become, it'll have to sort out and be able to evidence that it can cope, it's robust with regards to security. People think about it as a performance enhancer, but for it to do meaningful things, then I think some of the security aspects need to be, you know, drawn out and really understood. I mean, I remember Guy, a UK telco, this is probably three or four years ago, telling me they were adding, I don't know, it was like a million IoT devices to the network a month. They didn't know what to do with them. They didn't know, you know, but they've got all these devices that get added. Um, so it's... Uh, it's a million a in, how many in a month again? I think it was a million a month. Okay. That's what, this was <laughs> 2018. <laughs> Yeah, one of the bigger ones. Um, and what was that? Was it just like sensors or what? Like sensors, network connectivity? Sensors? You know, all sorts mm. of things. And, and, you know, there's a lot of companies out there with good tech to do things with that data, with things like digital pairs, you know, to do the comparison on the edges and things like that. But, um, and I know in Dubai, um, there's a lot of projects there around making Dubai a smart city or a smarter city with um, smart. They have Mazda City, no? Um, yeah, Mazda is actually uh, somewhere close to my heart. You know, we've got some uh, 
some interest there around um, smart mobility and things like that. But um, again, um, these deployments are still reasonably small scale. When they get large scale, then I think um, people will start getting interested around the robustness and trust of those networks. But look, I don't want to make it sound like I think it's a bad idea. I think it's a good idea. Hmm. But, you know, we're gonna, there will be some hiccups on the way as these issues um, evolve. And again, with most things, most people won't, let's say they won't understand, they won't be interested to, enough to understand the implication of their use of these services, if that makes sense. Mm, could you elaborate on that? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think even today, your average user of social media is only just waking up to figuring out that they're the product, not the customer. Okay. You know, people are only just waking up to, I mean, when that WhatsApp thing went out, WhatsApp said they were going to share their data with Facebook. Um, okay. Was that two or three weeks ago? Not in Europe, but uh, I think in, in the US. Yeah, but this is just this is just Elon Musk. I mean, this guy is also like, I mean, please, like, get a life, man. But you're the richest man in the world, and you're concerned about WeChat and WhatsApp. But he anyways, is. He could probably make his own one. And uh, he should. He should and prove that he's doing it better than ever. Yeah, well, I don't know what's happened. No, well, it's connectivity, Richard, because um, this is what me and Tim are complaining about, and this is going to go on the podcast again. Shout out to Dkicks, biggest um, internet, pro um, what do you call it, provider? No, internet not in the world. Um, yeah. Please please come fix the connectivity problem in London because... But, but yeah, probably Elon Musk should do his own... Um... Or because I mentioned his name, it disconnected, you see? He's listening to this. He's yeah, a, no, he's no, it disconnected when he first mentioned his name, oh. so... He now says I have a very good network, but I still don't but, have a Anyway, you don't need to see me. Uh, anyway, no, no. So people being the product rather than the customer um, um, uh, in, in, in the social media context, but what, what in the IoT context, how would that... Um, well, I don't what, think people question. They People are very accepting. Um, you know, you'd be amazed. You know, you walk around and you see people's Wi-Fi is completely open. I bet if I walk out down this road now with my phone and try and log on to lots of people's Wi-Fi's, there'll be lots of open open solutions there and, and so on, or easy to hack. So I just think with IoT mm. and people relying on decisions made by services running on the edge, i.e., that traffic light's going to change based on its um, its awareness of the local um, situation. Um, you, you know, I think people need to be aware of, you know, what the what the potential issues are around that. Mm -hmm. uh, Have you heard of Neuralink, Richard? It's a new IoT thing coming up. Elon Musk is actually the one who's funded it. Um, have you heard about it or not? The microchips implants into the brain of a human so you can control IoT devices? Oh, he was on um, oh, a <laughs> new thing where, where you can drop in on people's chats. Clubroom. He was on Clubroom. 
Clubhouse. Clubhouse. Yeah. Clubhouse, yeah. Talking about that. Um, well, it's, it's coming live um, end of this year, so um, they just announced it. Yeah, um, yeah, some of that kind of stuff's getting a bit scary, for sure. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll stick with my uh, Garmin heart rate monitor and my... Uh, and my Swift. And my yeah, that's as far as I the point where the 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 concept of free choice will be in danger because right now we still have or perhaps not you perhaps don't agree but tricky tricky question um do you think that we will come to a point where this notion of free choice choice will be um endangered um you know because it just said yeah i'm gonna stick with my garment but at some point you might just need to go with the flow um, you don't really well, have free choice. I like. I like you. You said notion of free choice, which is interesting because I think what you probably what you normally have is just a you have a set of options that you choose from. You don't have infinite options to choose from. So, um, but I feel look, IT has generally, you know, IT's. I mean, you think about. Think about cloud, what we just talked about, cloud and, and, and edge computing. You know, the reason IT is able to move so quickly generally is it is less encumbered by the thought of things going wrong. You know, if I'm designing the next Airbus or the next Boeing, whatever, I have to make damn sure it doesn't go wrong or it doesn't crash. But if you think about the way IT works, you know, Apple releases its new OS X 99.9 or whatever it is. And, and the next day, a gazillion people are complaining and they issue a patch and everyone says, yeah, that's okay. It's not a problem. So IT is able to kind of, I wouldn't say get away, but by nature, it's able to push, push innovation by not being as concerned about the consequences if you were a medical equipment manufacturer or you know, making nuclear missiles or things like that. And, and IT is driving the development of missiles and uh, medical equipment and and, and, and and pharmaceuticals and and airbuses and all that stuff, isn't it? Well, probably I think people fighting each other is probably driving the <laughs> Perhaps. I think, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the, fu the future will be cyber warfare. Um, it already is. quite obvious. It already is. Yeah, but on your point you just made, you said there is a difference between IT and... Um, well, okay, the launch of a service. Let's say the launch of a service. Yeah. So the launch of a service is much more, you know, we're happy to put up with. I mean, we update our apps and our phones and our whatever almost daily, don't we, with, you know, new functions, new, new whatever. New apps, new, yeah. And that doesn't, and that points to. I'm not saying a lack of rigor, but a lower, a lower, or a higher tolerance for things not to be perfect mm -hmm. in the consumer space or the way we use apps. Oh, it didn't work; it crashed. I mean, today, I mean, how many how many apps have crashed on your whatever you're using this week, and you just say, okay, restart it and start again, type thing. 
my for example the platform we recording on has <laughs> crashed three times before i was able to go no but um yeah i i i see where you're coming from so um so it gets a pass really you know yeah. now there comes always a point in that evolution where kind of regulation or consequence kind of comes back and, and, and takes control and I think that the IoT edge space has not yet had that kind of break or the um, the um, the hand of not regulation, but the, the hand of let's go a bit slower and really make sure this stuff works, mm -hmm. not just as a service, but it's this and it's that. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what I was trying to say. But I think I think also IT gets away with a lot of trial and error uh, because it has to develop so fast to Absolutely. try to keep up. Um, so it's probably one of the only industries where you can tell your client, oh, well, we thought it would work. Anyways, give us another six months, we come back with a different idea. Um, and, and failure is almost celebrated. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I talk about, you know, earlier in the podcast, I talked about Vista, which for younger people, probably don't remember it was microsoft's new version of windows and it was horrific and it would have killed many companies it was absolute rubbish system um but in the end people shrugged their shoulders and then bought whatever came next yeah um you know it, you had 2000 xp then you had the one with the dinosaur i remember there was like a dinosaur yeah, cursor yeah, and you could get trying to help you a paperclip I'm like, you know, are you sure you, <laughs> you sure you want to press the space bar? I mean, it was just, it was, it was delusional. Mm. And, um, but you know, I'm quite sure if a, if an aerospace company or a car company had failed that badly with a product, it would have been much more terminal than an, an IT company. Yeah. Um, so I think. Edge is super important, as is all of this stuff, provided we can safeguard, you know, the use of it in terms of, you know, security. And you could have a long debate about, okay, who who guards the guardians and those kind of things, but, um, hmm. you know, that, that that's that's that that's another subject. But um, in terms of, you know, smart cities, smart mobility, that kind of stuff. You know, IoT's there, it's working. I think you've got critical national infrastructure that's got to come next, all of that stuff. Um, the the, the, the securitization of that is going to be the most important step. Where's the biggest money to, to make for, for in IoT or with IoT? Sorry? Where's the biggest money to make with IoT uh, in the next couple that's a good question. Um, I mean, I do a lot of investing. Mm -hmm. I invest in a lot of startup companies. And one of the things I often look at technology is I look at a great idea and I just think, how is this going to be monetized and who's going to monetize it? Because you can see some great tech, but you can't figure out who's going to monetize it. Yeah. So, I think the value around IoT is 
going to be around the data and the processes and selling or use of that data to make better decisions. Mm -hmm. Now, what you now have is a bifurcation between where the benefit is and the cost of putting down that infrastructure. So, you know, so you've got, it's a bit like, um, you know, server manufacturers, you know, they don't, they're essentially selling hardware. Um, they don't really play a part in the monetization of what goes on on that server. And mm -hmm. I think at the moment, you've still got that same kind of split between um, the, uh, how the IoT stuff's going to work. The, um, so I think it's going to be around the data, the use of that, and then who cares enough about that data. So I'll give you a very good example. Yeah. If you take autonomous mobility and you look at, you can imagine a city with lots of autonomous vehicles, all, all transports on demand, no taxis roaming around hoping for someone to stick their arm up. But that infrastructure, software and whatever, it costs money. So the question is, who's getting the benefit and who's prepared to pay for that benefit? So, and that's where I think a lot of this stuff gets hooked up is, um, you know, the people getting the benefit, i.e. you and me, better transport system are, don't really want to pay for, we don't typically want to pay for the real cost of transport. So it tends to be a, you know, government or citywide initiative that's done for the good of man, funded out of taxation. So I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of thought around business models here and how that works. And going back to my other point is the obvious thing is you've got more insight into what people are doing, but are people prepared to have that packaged up and sold? So for example, Richard's leaving his house. We know statistically he walks past Starbucks on his way to the station. We're going to pop, you know, we're going to pop, you know, via his, um, by his telco sim so for example he's with um you know he's with etisalat in dubai he, you know so etisalat sell chunks of advertising iot's telling them where i am it pops up and sells my day you know do we want that is that something that you you know so that, that traditional advertising model might not be something that people are prepared to put up with to subsidize their lower use of iot enabled systems if you like mm -hmm. maybe to make it a little bit clearer for the listeners it's just imagine if you're walking down let's say if you're in london oxford street and you're passing by ralph lorraine and all of a sudden you get a message which says come to ralph lorraine today get a 20 percent discount um to this kind of surveillance that's what you mean rich right that um your data yeah, real time and rather than it popping up on your twitter feed or your instagram feed or whatever which is a bit more it's actually real time you know popping up so really and i you know I'd, I'd be interested in people's comfort with that level of um information about them mm -hmm. you know, being essentially used to subsidize you know some of these smart city investments i think they're undoubtedly let's call them parties or um, stakeholders that would like to see such developments in the future. And um, I think that 
as long as they manage to give you some kind of promise attached to it and promote it um, in a certain way, I think it is almost certain that the acceptance will will grow over time. If it will be enough to, um, you know, uh, permit this kind of uh, surveillance. Um, surveillance capitalism. That's that's the word I wanted to avoid, but it is in fact the word that yeah, yeah. To permit this kind of surveillance capitalism, I don't know if it will be enough um, to you know give way to this kind of surveillance capitalism. Um, yeah, but I think uh, there is certainly there are certainly stakeholders who want that, and I think they have the influence to manage to fabricate um, you know consent to use another. Submersive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just tick a box at the very end of something that you yeah, never yeah. read. So, so to use another, um, yeah, subversive uh, term. But in the end, I guess it's good that we're having this conversation about you know um, uh, value and um, how you say, uh, yeah, whether we want that or not. So another thing. Um, where, where money could be is the pharmaceutical companies, isn't it? Um, in terms of their um, manufacturing of uh, products and, and medicines and pills and all that. I mean, they're... Um, vaccines. Vaccines. Yeah, a really interesting use case for blockchain. I mean, you talked about blockchain earlier. Safeguarding supply chain with integrity is really important. I mean, something like something like 50% of all so-called Toyota parts on the aftermarket are not actually Toyota parts, they're fake. Hmm. Imagine that. You can check that on Google, but... Um, How is that possible? Huh? Well, it, it, was, it was bad boys like myself who used to sell automotive spare parts, mate. But, um, basically, aftermarket, it's called aftermarket. But you can imagine in... When take take now there is undoubtedly going to be a huge market in fake vaccine maybe not in countries like uk germany and whatever but in the countries that can least afford it mm -hmm. you know what we used to condescendingly call the third world but let's call it developing economies they they will be the most exploited from that kind of thing. And, and, and that is where things like blockchain can actually be a force for good, you know, mm -hmm. safeguarding um, food supply chain and things like that. Uh, mm -hmm. I do think, um, you know, even think about, think about halal food. Um, you know, there's very little... Um, there's very little provenance in that supply chain around whether the whole supply chain of that that food is halal, for example. Um, just to come back to you, the vaccines you're speaking about, there was 10 hours ago um, in China, they have confiscated 80 containers with fake COVID-19 vaccinations. Already. And they already busted a ring of eight individuals that were part of that uh, criminal syndicate. Uh, so, and they're the uh, people that they've found today you know that'll be the tip of the iceberg so i think that's where 
you know, in pharmaceuticals and tracing batches and anything like that, I think IT has a huge part to play. And that's always been, you know, really important around, um, you know, even going back to military use cases, what components are in which devices and those kind of things, that, that immutable um, audit trail is, is, is really important. So, yeah, I think that that's where technology can be a force for good, for sure. Mm -hmm. I, I guarantee okay. you, I guarantee you, you know, having worked on hundreds of IT projects across the world, it would take longer to implement the IT than it did for them to invent the vaccine because that's just the way IT projects are. <laughs> okay. Um, should we should we bring it to an end, Tim, because we're running over time and I have to go on a swift race. Um, so I'm sorry, mate, cycling. Try, this first try. I, look, I said I would come if no one else would. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not like this, but... Um, it, it would be nice, Rich, if you would uh, be joining us on, on the racing. Uh, the thing is, uh, Tim, I have this theory. Rich is like, so, so Rich went with the young lad cycling, and uh, we he he was quite good. But now, since since eight weeks, he's like, we don't know. He's like going really hard, going to like um, his food, diet, and training rosters. And we just think he's 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 probably even on a medical plan now or something. I'm I'm not saying there's any conspiracy theories here, Rich, but um, no, I'm, you know, I'm so, a, we, I'm a, so we think you're gonna come. So we think you're gonna be Lance Armstrong in the spring season. So um, climbing a box hill within five seconds and leaving the I'm the younger guys behind you. Definitely um, aiming to uh, come back with a different uh, level of performance, but we'll see what's possible. <laughs> all right i hope that um yeah on that note i guess we, we we shall conclude um that uh yeah the guest is always the last word and um of all things we've talked about i think it was quite eclectic um but of all things we talked about what was the um what was the thing that the audience should take away, in your opinion, Richard? And um, yeah, what is your message for our listeners? And, and, and don't say it in Arabic. <laughs> Honestly, oh my. I think if you get the, I mean, it's non, it's a non-IT thing, really. But I think if you get the chance to work in amongst some different cultures and experience different ways of life, it's the best thing you can do. Mm -hmm. so get out there meet some people not very easy at the moment for sure i think i only meet the postman at the moment but um, <laughs> yeah get out there and use something like it as an enabler to, to to meet people see people and, and get around the world hopefully do some good hopefully make some money and then when you've oh, done all that beautiful. buy a new bike and race paul to win <laughs> <laughs> I, I i would have thought he would have said buy a bike buy a pair of lycra go cycle meet some people and then get into it but um yeah that always works that way but um thank you very much rich it was a pleasure having well, you here. hopefully that was good um sorry about the camera but probably better for you that you don't have to look at me um that's okay it's audio only anyway so uh... Wow, great, Tim. So you see, I didn't mention even once 
just to mention this here, yeah, I didn't even mention once an Iron Man training. Yeah, um, but you mentioned your Swift thing, which is like okay, but uh, granted, well, it's IoT. I mean, that's a smart training device. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the next challenge will be just don't mention your training routine at all, <laughs> and please don't mention your diet either. And uh, yeah. Well, no, we're almost on the way to have a to have a very good podcast. And <laughs> as long as you don't start making uh, sharing, I was honestly, I was uh, when you started talking about this recipe um, <laughs> for the Mendy, <laughs> Yemen uh, recipe from Yemen. Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly believe that you were going to, you know, share the whole recipe, and <laughs> but I you. Think- did- which is almost kind of a shame because I now crave um, this kind of. Oh, it was so good! I'm telling you, it was. It is yeah. so good that kind of food you only eat with your hands. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love so that! Can, uh, and and a bit of yogurt. So you have to like hot <sighs> texture and then the cold yogurt, and then you make this. It's called salata hara. All right, so this is how you salata hara. This is how you say it in Arabic right away. It means the hot salad, yeah. And it's mm-hmm. like chilies, tomatoes, a little bit of basil, a little bit of like coriander and could you put in could the, the recipe um with with our listeners well it's it's quite easy so you make a yemeni um mix of herbs and spices which is like cardamom cinnamon black pepper um and then you put also some turmeric and some curry powder and everything is about two two tablespoons mm-hmm. mix it all together and then you basically get two onions chop them up put them in a big pot um, get them to a golden color, you know, golden glassy. Then you put that mixed spice on it. Only um, three quarters of it because one quarter of it you're going to need for your chicken. So then you mix it up, make it all nice. Then you put some vegetables in it, cut two or three tomatoes on it, but complete tomato, but cut in like nice little big chunks. Then you put um, some, you can put some nuts, but definitely you should put some dried grain berries. All mm-hmm. right. Then the whole thing, you're going to fill it up with water till halfway of the pot is covered and then you put your rice in it and then you cook it for 40 minutes until okay. there's so no that, more it's now now's the chicken the chicken you take the, the mix put it on the chicken and you put the chicken aluminium foil and you just put it in the oven for 40 minutes after 40 minutes remove the aluminium foil and put the oven on grill that's it and then this is that one and then you need the yogurt and the salata hara but it is it's called chicken mendy it is absolutely delicious i mean nothing better than this if you have been in the middle east you see all these little chicken mandy shops on the side of the road and yeah i mean recommend it highly that's it mic drop no i'm joking but anyways oh, way um, better. i mean it sounds way better than the average chicken shop here in uh london oh no it's nothing no, no it's nothing like the stuff we have here the stuff oh, no, i'm sure i just wanted to make oh, you know what you know what, i you know what tim I, I will make it for you once we're back and can see each other physically again okay. we, we should reunite over chicken and rice I think let's that's, that's reunite over yeah. So I let's speak anyways. So let's speak about the episode. Um, yeah, great, great insights from Rich. Um, if you guys are an IoT startup or work in the IoT industry, reach out to Rich. Rich is a, what how would you call an angel investor that uh, likes to put his hand into. Uh, I think they're called. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he's always keen on getting to know new things, new technologies. So please feel free to reach out to Rich in regards to it. That's why we didn't really have a job title for Rich. Mm-hmm. um 
so this is maybe something for um, people listening out there that, that maybe have a startup or working on a new product and they need somebody who can give the expertise or advice to it. So Rich would be a kind of a guy to go to, to be honest. And it was great to have some feedback from out there and uh, hear how the industry is growing over there because that's um, something unique and um, definitely it's one of the fastest growing parts of the world currently. And uh, also a lot of money is being put into infrastructures and yeah, it's great. And I would like to use this moment as well to, um, well, maybe we should not better do that, Tim. I thought maybe. It would be, um, it's a quite a sad story, but let's not go into sad stories then. Okay. Well, well anyways, um, let's just, a, a big shout out to, to Captain Tom. This was the hundred year old man who um, raised the money for charity because he just passed away. So, um, yeah. Okay. That's it from the Uptime Punks. Um, the, 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 a podcast of legends um we were glad that we could bring you another episode from the other part of the world from the other side mm-hmm. and um many interesting things to come in the coming weeks um so please subscribe please stay tuned and oh yeah tim forgot it so we mean to have something really cool for you guys so please go to www.uptimepunks.com so we have our homepage up and running and on our homepage. For all of you that heard how Tim looks like the David Letterman of tech, um, we have some merch. We have T-shirts now. So you can get a lovely shirt with Tim's beard and his glasses on. Um, (laughs) Of course, um, the shirts are circular economy. Um, Everything is made out of um, sustainable materials. Um, Renewable energy-powered factories and all that. Look it up. uh, We've partnered with T-Mill. Yeah, we partnered with T-Mill. Um, I came across them through David Attenborough's campaign with um, Perfect Planet, which you guys have probably seen on BBC. So that's where the idea came from. And yeah, we're going to try to use some of the money to um, help some projects out there that we think are relevant to the IT industry and sustainability. So um, it'd be great to um, have you fellow punks wearing some of the merch. So um, yeah, thank you for listening in and take care. Thanks. Cheers, bye.